Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition to win at work, drive your career forwards and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. So hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. As usual, I am your host, Hannah Monroe, and with me today is Robert Spendetti. So Robert is Chief Financial Officer of Lifecycle Engineering, and he's also the president and founder of the Global CFO Council. So welcome, Robert. It's awesome to have you on the show. Well, good morning for me, at least, here in the States, and thank you for having me on the podcast. I enjoyed listening to some of your podcasts, and I'm excited to be here. Oh, no, it's brilliant to have you on the show, particularly because obviously you come at it from a couple of different angles, which I'm very excited to talk to you about today. So so tell us a little bit about your 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 history, um, how you ended up as a CFO um, in your current role, and also a bit about the, the Global Council. What are you doing there? Well, I'm going to go way back, Hannah because I think it's interesting is that I started off as a communications major in college and really accounting or finance was far away from my mind. But at the end of my freshman year where I went to college, you meet with a counselor and you talk about what you want to be when you grow up. And I said, staff writer at a newspaper. And Hannah, you may be too young, but there's this thing where they print, they used to print uh, words on paper and send it to your house. That used to be a big thing. And I wanted to do that. Uh, but I found out at that time that they made $18,000 a year as a staff writer at a newspaper. And I thought, I'm making that waiting tables. I really don't want to go to college for four years to make $18,000. What other options are there? And there was a book with salaries. And at the front of the book was a bunch of business school stuff. And I said, stick me in the business school. I'll figure it out. And I liked finance and accounting classes. Um, everybody else seemed to think they were either weird or boring or the rules were stupid. And I thought, well, it's just rules. If you memorize the rules, then it's just debits and credits. And so undergrad in finance. And uh, then I got an MBA. I uh, got a master's degree in accounting and financial management because I wanted to sit for the CPA exam. So I did that and I passed. Thank God. Um, I think I peaked because I don't think I could pass the CPA exam again. Uh, so that is something I will never, I think y'all call it chartered accountants, but uh, I will never let that license lap because I never want to take that <laughs> test again. And uh, so I've always been in corporate finance. I never did the like the audit or tax route. I've always been in corporate finance. But I think the best thing about an accounting and finance degree is that it's completely transferable to industry. And so that corporate finance from, say, a, a manager to director to VP to CFO, it's been in hospitality, food and beverage, aerospace, transportation, textiles. And now I work for a professional service firm. So I think it's an awesome degree. And if you are thinking about being a bean counter, I say go for it. 
<laughs> I love that that terminology. And we have an interesting phrase here over in the UK about um, when we when we learn to drive. So you learn to pass your test, and then you actually learn to drive. And I think sometimes that can be true with the with the accounting side of things as well. You kind of you learn what you need to do to pass your test, and then you go into the big wild world and you learn actually what it is like managing finances and taking things forward. So. Um, but yeah, the, the term bean counter is an interesting one, isn't it? Because there's a lot of talk at the moment about how the CFO role is shifting um, and things are changing. Are you seeing that change in what you're doing? Oh, definitely. And I say it in jest and I'm sure I'm going to get some emails because people hate that term. They think it's insulting, but I'm trying to embrace it and take over that term. And that's another great thing about being the CFO or VP or controller is that at most companies now that uh, at, I would say, except for the very, very large companies at the very, very large companies, you get siloed with just accounting and finance, but at sort of the small, large and the mid market and small firms as the CFO, you're over not only accounting and finance, but you're going to be over contracts and purchasing sometimes human resources, IT uh, at this current company that I work at, Lifecycle Engineering, at times I've gotten to partner with and support the marketing and the sales operations teams. So that's really awesome, you know, to have that sort of breadth and to your point, strategic focus, uh, more focused on customer facing roles, value added roles, uh, than maybe historical number generation of how last month went. Absolutely. Because I don't know about you, but that's the most, for me, it's the, you know, the, the putting together of the technology is, it, you know, is really interesting, but it's actually the outcomes that it drives and the shift that you see, I guess, in the roles that you're, you're playing as well are the most interesting part of the, the transformation piece. I'd say it's definitely equal. If I'm being honest, I'm embarrassed to say I really love collections and reconciling credit cards. Uh, I don't get to do that anymore. I haven't been able to do that in about <laughs> 10 years, uh, but because it's not my job anymore, unfortunately, you know, and you got to let uh, other team members do their job. But uh, I actually really like, uh, and I if, if I wasn't careful, I would get stuck in my office all the time. But Hannah, to your point, it's more important because I'm being paid to be the CFO to think about how I can equip the team members with the best processes, the best new team members, the new technology to execute their job. And that's that's what I'm getting paid to do. And I think that's an interesting perspective, isn't it? In that that you, your your awareness, I guess, and your view on what that CFO role does as much as you'd love to spend your time. And I've, I'm going to be honest, Robert, I've never had anyone tell me they love reconciling credit cards. So you are definitely a first there. <laughs> but that that's, you know, it is that shift, isn't it? About being able to step away and and what what was the thing about delegation? Did you find it easy to delegate those roles, or was it more about you just you enjoyed doing it, so you didn't want to let it go? Uh, I think what it is is you just find success in something, so you lean towards that. And uh, I found that I'm really uncommonly good at collections, and so uh, and it, that's really important at a small or mid-sized firm. Cash is king. And you need cash to make payroll. And I just found that a lot of people don't like that. And I just made like a game of it and got the people involved. Not that it's something bad or negative, that it's, hey, it's a game and we got a number to hit. And I just found it really fun. So 
that's good. The bad thing is, as I grew at larger and larger companies or at companies where it wasn't an issue, I found myself, wow, I'm spending a lot of time with the collections team because I like that and I'm comfortable with it and not enough time with like the sales department and human resources and other strategic initiatives. And I just, I, I realized uh, I was sort of leaning on a crutch and I need to kick that crutch away. And and I guess that's a again a really interesting point about your your self reflection and your ability to sort of I guess self analyze and how do you assess your performance as a CFO? What is it that you look at in terms of your own performance and figure out you know where you need to focus and where you need to drive next? Yeah, probably two things. You know, the one is is the team. So I got a team of folks that I work with, and are is the team? Do they understand the mission? Did they help develop the mission? And so do, they, do their departments have goals and are they working towards those goals? And are there some roadblocks blocks that I can kick, kick down for them? So that's probably number one is just supporting the team. You know, I got, I got an awesome group of people that I work with and if I don't show up for a couple of weeks, everything's still going to get done. And I think that's pretty awesome. I'm, I'm lucky to have that. And on the other side, uh, and this is the harder side because sometimes, you know, folks in operations and sales in the companies that you work with, some of them are awesome and then some of them are not so awesome. But you you got to support them all and you got to be that embedded finance person, uh, even if you don't think they're right, uh, they're your internal customer. And so you got to kind of try to shape them, nudge them, help them, be their friend. And uh, that's the other part of the job is being that internal consultant and uh, walking alongside them and uh, helping them achieve their goals, their operational sales goals. Because there's there's no beans to count if somebody isn't making something or selling something. So I, I'd really like to help them do it and more of it. Absolutely. And I, that's um, so literally the, the last podcast we had out this week was all about finance business partnering. And, you know, it, it's it's a challenging skill, isn't it, in terms of actually both building out your team members and also your, as yourself going into that, um, that sort of like your trusted consultants and those relationships. Um, and like you say, sometimes the perception of finance isn't always as you would like it to be when you first come into a role. So talk to me about how you approach that, that perception of finance. What do you do to, to change it or to deliver on it? Yeah, maybe two parts. Uh, there's a little part of it that I really like, because I do think there there is a part of being the CFO that you're sort of the adult in the room and everyone else is just sort of playing and, ah, oh, you know, we're not going to make any profit on this one, but we'll make it up in volume. Or uh, do people really have to pay us? Can't we just give them net never payment terms? Or uh, you just, you know, in 80% of the time, people are super smart and making the right decision. But there's, you know, once a week, somebody says or does something nuts. And it is important to be the adult in the room and maybe not everybody's best friend. So that's one thing, but that doesn't mean you should be anybody's enemy. So you got to learn to, and I'm working on this. This is a little journey that I'm on is uh, try to establish a rapport when somebody, when, so when you do say uh, no or ask questions or push back that they receive it in a uh, positive ish way. So that little, that people side, uh, of business is important and probably more important than I realized early on. So this has been a little bit of a personal journey, Hannah, and something that I'm working on. 
Awesome. So tell me a bit about your journey in terms of your what you've seen in terms of, like you say, the people side of finance, because we don't talk about that. Like we talk a lot about the numbers. We talk a lot about the data. But tell me your perspective on the people side of finance. Yeah, there's uh, one part of it that I noticed is early on in one of my first jobs out of college, I was tasked with implementing a new project. And uh, I thought that all I needed to do was identify every task that needed to be done in order of those tasks, and then who was going to do each task. And then if something else needed to be done, or if that person needed a resource to do the task, you know, if I just mapped it all out, it'd get done. And, and I realized it, it didn't really happen. And there was another part of it. And there was the people side of change. And that then that also applies not only to change projects, change management, new implementation, but that's just everyday life is that just because you have a job description or you maybe you talk to somebody or they even said, this is the thing I'm supposed to do, doesn't mean that they're actually going to do it. And there might be something personal going on with that person that might have other priorities. You might not remember the 10 other things you gave them to do. And so I just think that's something that uh, was not an initial learning out of college. I had the debits and credits down. I was great at finance, but that I got to work with people and uh, with people and not through them. And so I think that was just a uh, improvement based on a project, implementing a new project, but I think it applies to every part of my job. Absolutely. And, and and it always amazes me about how much we focus. And even as consultants, you know, we focus, we're told to focus a lot on the technical skills. And actually, when I'm training new team members, I focus, you know, they can learn technical, but actually it's the soft skills, I think, that really add the value during a, a transformation project. So, so what's your view on, you know, how, how you, you can support people through that change and that transformation journey? Yeah, a couple things that come to mind. One is that uh, involve them early on in whatever the solution is, especially the people that are either impacted or have worked sort of in the problem the most. So don't walk in with a solution like, hey, I, I, here's what y'all are going to do for the next two years. <laughs> oh, and I have a pretty Gantt chart and you're the red line. That, that, that's not that's not. You know, don't tell anybody they're the critical path. Uh, I think that, so you start early. So a problem is I've been identified. We'll then get people that are involved in the process identifying what the solution is. So you get that early buy-in. And those folks are going to have the best ideas. Uh, They're walking around dealing with the problem every day. And so uh, that's probably number one. And then number two is when you expand that group, So you got stakeholders on the ground, you got mid-management, executive management, you got a champion, you got all that. And then you start spreading it out and trying to get everybody in the organization involved. I like to start with the what's in it for them. So it's like tune into station WIFM. I don't know if you guys have the same radio station uh, nomenclature in the UK, but uh, you got to lead with what is in it for the person if they are involved in this change management project or accept this change management project. And then a final note that I like to throw out there, this was a lesson I learned later, is that there, there's always a few people that aren't going to want to change no matter what. They, you tried to get them involved, you tried to sell them on what's in it for them, and then they still think, nope. 
And I, I have some bifurcation for that group. One is that you can't change everybody and don't spend 80% of your time talking with like 20% of the people, especially the loud people who think you're, all right? So that's, don't spend 80% of the time on 20% of the group. But keep an ear out for somebody who's complaining that has a really good point. Like not everybody who claims and disagrees with you is an idiot. Like actually they might be super smart and they were just on vacation or maternity leave or something when you were identifying the solution and you were seeking what's in it for them. They might've just popped back into the office and they're working again and they're like, we're doing what? And they might have a really, really good point. And uh, so that that's uh, those are some key things that I've learned. Uh, people side of change. And if anybody wants some additional learning, I think ProSci Change Management does a great job. Uh, and as as a, uh, I love Lean and Six Sigma, I'm a green belt and love those projects. I think a perfect complement to that, the people side of change is uh, ProSci. Yeah, that's a really, to be fair, I'll, I'll, um, I'll pick that one up. I'm a massive fan of um, Cotter's. Um, and the work that he's done, especially his recent model around change, I find really interesting. So rather than being linear, it's circular, which I really like. Um, and, and just going back to your point, I think that was a really interesting one around the 80 to 20 mix. So with those, that's 20% of people that are causing challenges. How do you approach it? Well, um, I think one, I, I try to be really visible so there was a period where like you, I never even heard the 20% that thought my idea was dumb or that the project I was working on was dumb because I wasn't around. I was just in my office updating the Gantt chart. And uh, I was, you know, emailing the people who were in charge and then I was updating my spreadsheet and notes and then I would send them out. And I just thought everything was going fantastic because I wasn't walking around. So I'd, I'd say that that's really important is to be visible if you are implementing a new software system or you are implementing a new process or you uh, are trying to initiate a return to work policy for uh, coming out of this pandemic, uh, I think you need to be really visible. And so then you'll, you will engage with the 20% of the people who think your idea is terrible. And when you do engage, be super polite keep it, lean in with an ear towards, this might be the one person who's super smart. But if they're not, and this the, their complaint is just ridiculous, still engage, thank them, appreciate the feedback, but you just can't dwell on it uh, or you'll just never move forward. Absolutely. And I think that's always, I guess it, the, the trick is to know whether it's the, like you say, the one smart person in the room that's thought of something that you may not have or figuring out pretty quick if what they're saying is a, a true challenge and, you know, won't be addressed as part of the project. Well, you do your best. You're not, I'm certainly not perfect. I'm work, everything I'm saying, I feel like I'm talking to myself. I'm lecturing myself. Hope I don't come off as preachy because I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm trying to, trying to have myself hear these things, uh, and, and do these things. So you just do your best. And then the other thing is, again, um, I led with, you're not doing this by yourself. That it is, it's a team, a change management team. Like maybe you're the champion uh, or maybe you're a leader of the change management project, but there's a team. And so you bring things back to the team and you might have a blind spot, but there's another team member who is perked, but is brought, oh, that's interesting. Robert, you might've missed something or another team member is visible and they're out and about and maybe they're more approachable 
than Robert Bendetti. And so they hear things Robert Bendetti doesn't. So I think that team is really important to help in that process that you catch the right feedback and let some of the other stuff just go. Yeah, no, that's it. It's the filter element, isn't it? How do you catch the things that are important and let let the other pieces go? So in te- when you think about, because obviously you've done quite a few different roles and we'll get onto your work with the um, the Global Council as well um, at some point during this podcast. Um, so I, I do think we could be sitting here chatting for hours, to be very honest. But when you look back on sort of your transformation projects, what are the ones that stuck out in your memory? What are the ones either that perhaps you don't even want to admit to um, that went really bad or ones that went really well? What was the, What was it about those projects that was interesting or challenging? Well, I, I think, and this is interesting because I think you work in this space, but I think the hardest are the software implementations. Um, I have seen those go so bad, so fast. I have seen more CFOs get fired uh, over software implementations than anything. And there's a particular software package that has nothing to do with you or <laughs> at all that I will not say under penalty of death <laughs> that if somebody, if a CFO tells me, oh, hey, uh, you know, strategic goal next year is I'm going to implement such and such. I'm just like, OK, yep. all right. Good luck with that. <laughs> um, you know, you might want to start networking now. Uh, update the LinkedIn page now. Uh, do you want me to keep an eye out for new roles for you? Uh, yeah, I think uh, so. Uh, I personally have really struggled over the past 25 years implementing software packages uh, of all types. I'm not just talking about, you know, people think I'm just speaking about financial software, but it's everything. Uh, You know, there's a software package behind everything. And that is a real challenge because there's so many decisions to make. Um, Is it on premises? Is it in the cloud? Uh, uh, What how quickly will you update in your version control? Are you are you just upgrading to the newest version? Are you completely switching packages? Um, when you switch packages, are you running things in parallel? Or do you have a hard stop? What happens to the history? It It's a really big deal. And so some of those have gone well. Uh, a couple of them that I had no involvement in almost other than being the champion went great. And uh, I wish I could take credit for those, but I can't. Uh, Those were more recent. So I'm a more senior position. So instead of the person in charge, I'm the champion, you know, who cut the check and uh, knocked down roadblocks, but I didn't do the heavy lifting. So I'd start with that is that uh, if you're implementing a software package, then you need to be on the leading edge of best practices and change management. And that if it, it it needs to be a part of the plan uh, from the beginning, that who's handling the, the process side and the people side of that change management, because uh, it's a big lift. So that'd be that'd be one thing. And then I think there's a, a big change management piece to mergers and acquisition. And I think it's often underlooked in the due diligence list. You're looking at the balance sheet, you're looking at the PL, you're looking at receivables and the customer list. Uh, but and you might look at the team for expertise or who you think you want to keep around like it's just your decision, which is silly because, you know, people get to leave. Um, but 
you, uh, I think that's really important too, is, is mergers and acquisition. And that think that's something that I think uh, I'm pretty good at. And, um, um, so that those, those are two things that pop up, um, where I can apply this change management is around software implementations and M&A transactions. I love that. So, and I love your con, you know, talking about that there's actually two sides to the story. Like you say, you know, people can, I think there is an assumption in that it's my way or the highway can actually lead to the highway. Let's be very honest. And it could be either person's choice. So how do you balance like the needs of, you know, the needs of the change um, and, you know, the, the value of the change to the business, but also with that, that other person's viewpoint? So how do, how do you approach it? Well, there's usually like a, a bunch of different reasons for why you're changing to something. Maybe there's like nine or 10 of them. And so I just lead with the one I think they care about. And then I have like a backup in case they think that's stupid. And, and then some people be like, all right, that's, you know, there's something, there's a reason, whatever. Uh, and, and a lot of people have worked at companies, especially middle managers and, and, and staff, you know, there's a lot of them who just like work there forever. And they've seen a bunch of new things all the time. And half of them are stupid. And if you just came around and asked, you're like, hey, I'm thinking about doing this new software implementation because um, I heard a bunch of complaints about the old thing. What do you think? And they're like, yeah, whatever. You know, as long as it's got such and such, that's cool. And then you can just the next time you see them, you're like, hey, we uh, we're doing the software implementation and it it has that feature you were talking about. They're like, oh, OK, cool. Well, then they feel like they were heard. And then if you can find there's somebody at every office or every plant that's like a super influencer. And so when you're trying to get somebody on the team or you're trying to uh, seek the input of others, you need to track, you need to find out who that person is, track them down and early on have that conversation with them. So if you're wondering like, well, how do I know who's the super influencer? Well, you're not getting out of the office if you don't know. Like at at my company, it's the office managers. Uh, We've got offices all over the U.S., and because we're a U.S. based company, we experience all over the globe. But where we have offices is in the United States. And those office managers, man, they run the show. And if they think your idea is stupid, it's going nowhere. So they're not a VP, but they got the they tell the VP what to do. And so, man, at Lifecycle Engineering, if you want something done, you got to talk to the office managers early, get them involved. And if they like your idea, then everybody at the office likes your idea. So that's who I go to first. I talk to them, get the thumbs up blessing. I'm like, all right, cool. This is easy now. (laughs) And there's somebody at every office who's a super influencer. She might be uh, a VP or he might be a clerk, uh, but there are just people who have outstretched influence in the organization. And you got to find out who those people are. If you're buying a company at the, at every plant, there is a super influencer and they, if they hate you and they hate this acquisition, everyone hates you and everyone hates this acquisition. But if you can kind of get to know them and they think they're, they're like, yeah, that ball guys, he's I, well, boom, you're in. And that's, so you got to look out for the super influencer, get them at least neutral. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's an, that's an interesting perspective, actually, like understanding, like, are they for you? Are they neutral or are they detractor? And figuring out where where else on the scale um, that different people sit, because uh, yeah, um, and I love that concept of an influence. We see it a lot. So you'll have one person in the team normally 
that is, if they're on board, you've got majority of them. Um, and if they're excited about the project, you've got them. And it's like you say, it's not always the leadership. It really isn't. So there's an interesting dynamic there. So, okay. So we talked about um, dealing with, um, obviously picking up the influences and uh, managing that through about understanding what matters to them. So the, the what's in it for me. And by the way, our radio stations are obviously nowhere near as organized as yours. We just have like BBC One, BBC Two. <laughs> That's us. Radio One, Radio Two. You know, we've really dumbed it down over here in the UK. Um, but uh, yeah, so so what else? Um, you're going through a change management project. Um, what? This is an interesting one. What's your view on vision and and actually have you know how you're discussing and the future and you know do you approach it if it could mean loss of you know loss of jobs or reallocation of roles how would you approach that scenario yeah i think you got to be 100 percent straight up and honest with folks and that um especially if it was part of the justification for the project very often i think though on the uh so i, I think there were a couple different questions in there so one is if the change is going to involve a change to people's job, uh, sometimes it's just all easier, better. And because of this, we're going to grow. So we're going to be hiring new people and maybe that's the change. Uh, or half the people are doing it one way, half the people are doing it another way. The other way was stupid. Everybody agrees. So we're just going to do it the one way. Right. So that could be a change project. But if it's, you know, we're, we, we, uh, instead of having 10 people do something, we're going to have no people doing something. The 10 people should know. And that, hey, there's 25 open positions. Apply now. And here's the skills to prepare yourself for. These are the skills that you would need to prepare yourself to do those jobs. I'm going to equip you with those. So if you choose to apply and you want to seek these skills, then you have the, the ability to do it. And now you're qualified for these other roles. Or when we're done with this, we're eliminating your role and you're, we're going to try to help you find another job. Like, I think you need to be really honest with people. And then they're not sabotaging you along the way. Now, they still think you're an idiot. I think that's dumb. I don't like this idea. Um, I quit. But they're not secretly sabotaging you while you're trying to implement it. So um, that I've done it a couple different ways. I've tried the covert. And and then I've just tried the straight up. And I just like the direct method. That's what I've been doing the past like 20 years. People seem to appreciate that more. Not appreciate it, but just a little bit more than um, and maybe not a hundred thousand percent honesty, but direct enough that you're not lying to someone. Um, if you know something, you know, try to prepare people. I, th I think that that's that's a good method. Um, and I think around vision, when you were asking about vision, mission, do you mean like a company has vision, a, a change project has a, a vision or mission, mission, some strategic end goal? Yeah, I think um, from the standpoint that the charter of this change management team should include that with a very clear goal. So there is a flag and you can speak to it. And I think it needs to be super clear and short. Because as I'm the person who usually has to communicate it as the CFO, I'm going to have to say it so much, it makes me nauseous, then it needs to be really clear and short. Because I, I don't, I, I don't need, 
you don't want to have to take like two hours to explain something. You want two minutes. So if, if you can explain what you're doing in under two minutes, yeah, go with that. That's the vision. So if you have seven versions, you have like a long version, a medium version, and a short version, start with a short version, cut it in half. That's your vision mission. And then just say it over and over again until you're sick of it. And when you are so sick of it, you think no one could possibly not know what's going on. Say it two more times and then you're good. Raise your game with Sage Intact. Bring down your close time by up to 79%. Use agile real-time reporting for instant visibility. Land an average ROI of 250%. With the heavyweight cloud software rated number one for customer satisfaction. Finance that packs a punch. Find out more from ITAS, the UK Sage and Tech Partner of the Year at itassolutions.co.uk. <laughs> so cut, you know, take your vision, whatever it is, take the shortest possible version, cut it in half and then say it so many times that you, uh, you get sick of it and then say it a few more is, is basically what you're saying to us. Oh yeah, I, that's man. I'm and you may have seen the exact same thing, Hannah. But it's it's nuts to me. Like I talk a lot, and um, I like to talk. And there's something I do at this current role every year. Like, and I go to every plant in the organization. I fly or drive everywhere, and I give this speech about something that's a little. It's a benefit to employees, and it's a little unusual, but it's good, and I love talking about it. And like the seventh time I did it, someone came up and said. I had no idea we had that at this company. And I was like, I've been mailing something to your house for seven years. This is the seventh <laughs> time I've been here. I've talked to you. You've been in the room. You know, I didn't say that, but I'm just like, wow, seven. I mean, I'm, it's like a half an hour presentation. Um, so people don't pay attention. You got to say it over and over and over and over again. Yeah. And and I think that's a really good point. You know, with any kind of change management as well, is just keep reminding, keep repositioning. And uh, yeah, um, seven times. There must be a stat about how many times you have to say something to guarantee that somebody's actually paid attention, to be very fair. Yeah, I'll have to do well, out. probably something like 14. You know, they say, and I think they just start making up these statistics, right? 75% <laughs> of all statistics are made up. Is I, I think that it's a lot, right? It's more than you think. Um and it's people have a life and they got a lot of things going on. Uh, even in a in a good season, we're busy. We got a job and then we've got a car that may be having some trouble. House, kids, spouse, family, grandma. And then you got bad seasons where, oh, you know, you're having to step up and take care of somebody else. And you're just not you're just not all in all the time. And you might have come around twice and caught somebody when they were not all in, they were, they, they had something else they were having to deal with. And then that third time you catch them and they're like, Oh, 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 oh I got you. All right. So if you got to catch everybody three times till they pay attention, you might have to say something a lot. Absolutely. And, and you made a really interesting, I'm just going to pull out. So one of the things you talked about before, which is saboteurs, because a lot of change management, you know, whatever kind of change management, there's normally, there's normally a few hidden, there's some that are vocal. And I, I don't know about you, but I actually prefer the vocal ones because I can address it. I don't like the the whispers behind closed doors. That's always the worrying one. So how, what's your approach to, to those that are, are trying to distract you from achieving the change that you that you are looking to well i used to be surprised 
And then, then real reason, real soon, I realized, well, there, it's not illogical. I'm changing their job for the worse in their mind. They like it the old way. They're an expert in the old way. They're the best at it. They're the only person in the plants who knows how to do it the old way with the old thing. And so now I'm coming in with the new whiz bang that's easier. Well, it's easier for everybody else. It's not easier for them. So they're going from expert, firefighter, ninja, problem solver to rookie, new person, uneducated, no experience, no no uh, uh, gravitas. And and I, I'm surprised they don't like my new whiz bang. That's just being dumb. So yeah, they don't. They think my idea is stupid. Of course they do. So uh, I, I'm just no longer surprised by it. And then the number two thing is I found that when I'm vocal about what I know, mostly, you know, at, to the reasonable level, and I share it vocally, then they share back vocally their dissent most of the time. And if they don't, the super um, influencer that I a hundred percent have on, you know, involved, she, or he tells me, you know, Julie and John, they think you're a total idiot and, um, you need to talk to them. And like, John, you might turn around. Julie's going to think you're an idiot all the time. And, uh, so you're going to know it's, there's no more a secret saboteur. Uh, it's, it's obvious either because you were vocal. So they're vocal. And, uh, or because the super influencer lets you know who what's going down. Absolutely. And, and, I then love again, that. and again, folks here, you don't like, this is not 80% of my life, right? The 80% is I have a day job and I'm doing a change management. The 20% is I'm trying to like do my best to seek the input of others, uh, have the, the thoughts influence the decision. Cause there are smart people out there. I might, might not have known something, and then I'm trying to find what's in it for them and then share what's in it for them. And I'm trying to nudge them a little bit into neutral. And then you just got to let it go. And you, because you got other things to do, right? You do not want to uh, be doing this project forever. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting piece is that very often people do feel like once they're in an implementation that it, 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 it hasn't got an end. And I think sometimes actually reminding people that this is this is short term, this is a fixed length of time and imagine where you're going to be, you know, uh, reading your reports on the beach somewhere, you know, next year, maybe if we're very, very lucky um, that it does uh, that it does have an end, I guess, an end date, you know, ch- you know, change that particular change will always have an end date, whether you might be involved in something else. But I think it's always a you know, putting limits on times can often help the process because they know it's temporary. They do. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, I mean, as a CFO, I, I think I read in, uh, I think it was CFO magazine uh, that your average for, this is a mid market firm and above. Uh, and this was probably a U.S. stat. Uh, I hope it applies uh, anywhere in the world, just in the sense that I, so this is helpful for somebody. The average role length for an executive, and in particular the CFO, is three to five years. So if you don't have an end date on your project, you have an end date on you. So if you are leading change, you're not. It's not your job for life. You're going to get fired, or you're going to quit. You're going to move. Something's going to happen. So you better have an end date. Something's going to expire. The project or you? Make it the project, hey? (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be better to finish and then leave, like on your yeah. own terms for a promotion because some, you know, huge firm, some awesome firm in the UK wants uh, Robert Pendetti to move there and they want to pay me triple. Um, I probably still <laughs> wouldn't go. Uh, not because I don't love the UK, I do, but because I love my job. But uh, yeah, finish finish the project. Have a date, right? You don't put a deadline to your personal life or your professional life goals. They're not going to get done. So 100% agree, Hannah. That that should be the second thing, right? You So the problem is number one. And then when we're going to be done is number two. Yeah. And and I will add a, a second piece of that when timeframes. Make it realistic. Don't set yourself up to fail because there is nothing worse. Um, and yeah, listen when you're giving advice. There's been a few where I've gone into and I'm like, you know, it doesn't matter how good I am. I That's just not achievable. I, I could be the best consultant in the world and you physically cannot do it. And I know it and you secretly know it, but you just don't want to to, to, to move away from it because it's the date that, you know, somebody's thought about and they've said that's the one we're going for. So. Well, they determined that goal and then they got quotes from five providers and then negotiated the rate for two months. Mm-hmm. And then finally, and then they went on vacation. So you couldn't start for another month. And then they're like, yeah, I still have the end date goal. Sorry, it's not my fault that I cut into your schedule by 25%. You, know, you just, yeah. I told my boss I'd be done. So yeah, you absolutely. So you got to do what happen. Uh, and, then, and then what will happen is somebody will decide, actually, we want to implement this part of the project at the same time because we had a phase two um, and actually want to bring that forward because it's really important to the business and we want to achieve it on the same time frame. So, Ooh, that, yeah. sound, that sounds recent. I love that. The, uh, <laughs> that sounds like... That was a recent project. Yeah. Well, part, you know, part, I have to say as a consultant, part of the job is is setting expectations. And I think, you know, go to your point, the reason a lot of projects fail um, and having done this for 10 years now, um, setting and being realistic around expectations from the beginning and what you're delivering and when you're going to delivering it is just one of the biggest things. You know, the people is huge finding the right technology, absolutely. But a lot of it comes down to making sure that you both know what you're delivering on both sides of the table. And that, you know, and then we get to do the fun bit, which is over exceed and then get people super excited once they go live. So that's always yeah, a good place to be. And that, you know, back to the other part of change management, so the process. So mm-hmm. I've seen on the process side, if somebody is sophisticated enough to put something in, say like Microsoft Project or, and really have a Gantt chart and a critical path, is that uh, I've seen so many of them not have any gaps uh, or waste in the process like or inefficiency, like uh, just assuming that that doesn't happen, that they're just 72 tasks, primary tasks, and 400 subtasks, and that there's no waste or inefficiency in any step. Um, and then that, that says will be done in 142 days. And so that's the goal. I'm just like... Uh, so you make widgets and you don't assume the machines are 100% efficient and that you have no material waste, but you have a process, you have a change process that assumes perfect efficiency and no waste. Hmm. Okay. And that everyone's going to learn at the same rate, that everyone's going to need the same level of support, the same level of training and all those kind of things. And I think that's that's the one thing I would shout out is know, know the people involved in change um, and make sure you resource it effectively. Um, because I've seen so many change projects that could have gone 
really well if the like you say the influencers and the right people are given that extra bit of support to help them through um and you know i've uh, and, and and i've you know you spot it and you go right let's just just do an extra hour with that person because once they get it they'll be away and we'll be laughing um and just having those people inside the business um to spot that and to make sure it happens um, because as consultants, and this is the one of the reasons that we don't we will never know your business as well as you do, and we will never know your people as well as you do. So I guess that's for me from an external perspective is make sure your consultants get to know your people and tell them what they need to know to be able to do a really good job. So And I think it, it's not just your personal life or your professional life, it's your personal life too. I think everything that we're talking about applies to say if if you wanted to improve your nutrition or you wanted to improve your fitness or your mental wellness, like every part of this, it, it's, you got to understand, it's not just a, do you have the ability or say knowledge, but do you have the desire? Truly, do you have, and so you got to, you know, treat yourself the same way. And I think all these principles that we're talking about apply to the personal life as well as the professional life. And you can flip it the other way. So one of the really interesting things I find when I'm talking to people about making change happen is like, if you think about it, you're going on a diet, you don't go out the day before you're going on a diet and stock the fridge with chocolate and crisps and Coke and Reese's, which I have to say as a, as a, I'm a massively addicted to, you just don't do it, do you? You kind of, you clear the decks and you make it as easy for yourself as possible. And I think that's the one thing that people don't think about before they go into a change project. They assume that people are going to do their same day job, but they're going to somehow find room to do that change project without actually clearing the decks, making it a little bit easier so that people can make that good decision and not not reach for the uh, the, the peanut butter cups that happen to be sitting on the shelf. So which yeah. uh, I will, yeah. is my Amen, weakness. sister. And, and this is a personal passion uh, uh, for me personally, because uh, a few years ago, I lost 65 pounds. And I lost one pound a week for 65 weeks and I lost 65 pounds. I had just looked up one day and realized, wow, I'm a pretty full figured uh, young man. And, uh, you know, maybe a little, uh, uh, a l- maybe large, uh, but I was just not healthy for me. And to your point, Hannah, exact thing. There were, there were some things in my life I could cold turkey. All right, cool. And because that I needed, and then there was some stuff that I realized that uh, I that, that I need to completely move away from my life. I can't even get near because I can't control myself. Uh, and so I, uh, Robert Bendetti loves donuts. I, they gotta have donuts in the UK, right? Oh gosh, yeah. So uh, uh, a Krispy Kremes. We have Krispy Kremes over here. Uh, yeah. But that's actually it. So the last time I had a donut, I had seven. That was wow. that's the that was the <laughs> day before I started my nutrition program, and uh, I had little crumbles of Krispy Kreme, the seventh Krispy Kreme, all over my shirt, and I was like, I cannot believe I just ate seven Krispy Kreme donuts. They were hot, and they were downstairs near the coffee. I drink a lot of coffee. It started with two. And then I had another two and then I had one and I couldn't remember how many I had had. So I had one more. And then there was a cold one during lunch. And I was just like, oh, my God, I had seven Krispy Kreme donuts in four hours. What is going on? And I was like, OK, some stuff. 
I can just have a little bit. And then there's some stuff. Got to take it out of the fridge. Um, no more, no more Krispy Kreme donuts. So I, I, um, I won't even go near it. I won't go to a Krispy Kreme. I won't, I won't go to it. And it's not because they're bad. Please, the CFO of Krispy Kreme, do not email me. Uh, they're so awesome. The same I can't. I can't control myself. And so um, whether maybe that's in business, there's something you just got to totally stop. Well, in my personal life, uh, if I was going to be on this wellness journey, I, I, that was something I couldn't control. So I had to, like you said, I just had to get that out of the proverbial fridge. Yeah, no. And, and I think that's an interesting, perhaps an interesting thought uh, to finish on is like, if you're going through change, how do you make that change easy for people? You know, and for those that are interested, some great stuff on nudge theory. So nudge theory is a really interesting piece. If um, And you start to notice it when you're walking around the supermarkets once you've read the book. Um, but uh, that that is all about how do you make small changes um, to, to, to make it easier for people to make the decisions that you want them to make. And I, and I do, I do, I'm a massive believer that with process change as well. So, um, just to leave that thought with everybody. Well, um, Robert, thank you so much for being on the show. Literally, I think we've run out of time. I, I, I there's a, there's a billion questions that I have for you. So thank you so much for coming on the show. And maybe if I ask very, very nicely, you'll come back on <laughs> in the future to talk about, um, some of the things that we were hoping to talk about as well. So, um, it's been amazing to have you on. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I enjoyed it very much. Wonderful. And so um, for those of you that, you know, if our listeners would be interested in sort of following, seeing what you're up to and also learning more about the Global Council. So before we finish, I'd love to learn more because you, you founded it. And how long ago did you actually found the council? Well, there was something like it in a city that I lived in. Um about 15 years ago, but I've, I've been leading it for the past six. And then again, it was just people side of my professional life. I realized like, it's not just enough to be smart and a great accountant. You got to have a, a peer network. And so it's an educational and networking forum for senior financial executives, global CFO council. We're global now so with COVID uh, before we were just growing with physical chapters, but now we accept members from anywhere in the world and have monthly virtual meetings and virtual social events. Uh, anybody who's a CFO is welcome to join. Uh, you just Google Global CFO Council or go to globalcfocouncil.com. It'll pop up. And then for me, uh, the only thing I'm really on is LinkedIn. So I'm the only Robert Bendetti, uh <laughs> that's a CFO, I think. It's not a very common name. So... Robert Bendetti, uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Love to uh, connect with your audience. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Robert. As I said, it's been lovely having you on the show. And for those that are interested, we'll of course pop the, the link to the Global CFO Council into the show notes um, and a link to, to Robert's profile as well. So thank you, Robert, for sharing all of your stories and knowledge with us today. It's been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you much.